As we come to God's word this morning, I can turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Today we'll be focusing on chapter 1, verses 12 through 22, as we continue Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Let's hear God's word as he speaks to us now in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read, and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. And to come back to you from Macedonia, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together for his blessing upon our time. Our great God, as we have heard your word read, and we now come to hear It opened up and preached. We pray that we would hear the voice of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would hear the Good Shepherd calling us. The Lord Jesus says that those who are his sheep recognize his voice and follow him. And we desire, Lord, to follow him. We thank you for your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that it would discern our thoughts, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, so that we might bring glory to you, that we might live in obedience to you. And so we pray for your Spirit's help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, I wonder if you've ever faced a situation where somebody's change of plans or not showing up caused some suspicion or maybe even caused some difficulties in a relationship because when someone shows up or when someone doesn't show up, you wonder, uh, why didn't they come? Uh, And they might give you an excuse and you wonder, is that a real excuse, legitimate, or did they really just not want to come? Maybe they don't like me. Uh, you can use a, we can use a stereotypical example of a teenager. Maybe you did this when you were a teenager back in the day. The teenager has a curfew to be back by 10 o'clock, and he rolls into the door at midnight. What's the parent going to do? How's the parent going to feel? Uh, they could feel dishonored. They could feel disobeyed. I told you to come at 10, and you're late. The teenager says, well, 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 I ran out of gas. And there are no cell phones back in those days. So, you know, kids, uh, now you just text your parents when something happens. You couldn't do that back then. You ran out of gas and I, they couldn't call. They couldn't text. So, so what's the parent going to do? Well, it might depend. It depends what the excuse is, first of all. Uh, you know, you could try to verify uh, the likelihood of the teenager running out of gas, uh, they could come up with some really lame excuse and uh, you know that they're probably not telling you the truth. It would also depend who the person was who changed their plans. Now, if your teenager a hundred times shows up right before 10 o'clock and keeps the curfew, keeps the rules, is very honoring and obedient uh, young young man, then, then you are likely to believe him. He says he ran out of gas, and that's why he was late. Now, if uh, he's kind of rebellious and not really uh, disobeying, and uh, he has done this like 49 times, and this is time number 50, are you going to believe him? Probably not. It depends who's giving you that excuse. And so the integrity of the person would... uh, would determine whether you're going to believe them and whether, uh, let's say, this was really just an accident and we move on in the relationship or there really is something wrong here. Well, a situation like that is happening with Paul and the Corinthians. Paul had made some plans and then he bailed on those plans. He did not keep the plan that he had said he was going to to keep. And him not keeping those plans was offensive to the Corinthians. They started to wonder, well, maybe Paul didn't show up here in Corinth because he doesn't like us. Maybe he's mad at us. But Paul then, hearing that response, he is hurt. Guys, I preach the gospel to you. I love you. I've shown how much I love you. Are you really saying that I would lie to you about why I didn't show up? Would I really give you some excuse? Are you really going to question my integrity, my sincerity? So that's the situation going on here as we come to this part of the letter. There's a strained relationship. The Corinthians are offended because Paul didn't show up like he had planned. And Paul's offended. Paul's hurt 
because the Corinthians have attacked him and questioned his sincerity. And so Paul is going to take time here in this part of his letter to defend specifically his integrity. That he is a man who, as much as he is able, he keeps his commitments. He is a man who always is honest and tells the truth. And that he, as a representative of Christ, is going to live a life of integrity. And so that's the main idea of this passage, is that those who represent the gospel need to live lives of integrity. Uh, that is especially true for those who are, have the position, the office in the church of preaching the gospel, but it's true of any of us who claim the name of Christ. As we represent Christ in the world, we need to live lives of integrity because we're representing the gospel. That's what we're going to see in verses 12 to 22. We're going to break this up into two parts. In the first part, Paul boasts in his integrity. And then in the second part, verses 15 to 22, we see his integrity in his speech. So first, Paul is boasting in his integrity. Let me read verses 12 to 14 again and notice this. He says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge and hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So remember here in this letter, especially at the beginning, Paul is giving his self-defense, his legitimacy as an apostle. We saw last week that he talked about the afflictions that he had experienced and how God was actually using that for their good so that he might learn to comfort them and he might learn to rely upon God. And he ended the passage, verse 11, by asking that they would help him through prayer. So he wants them to be fellow workers. They can help him in his mission through prayer. And now he's continuing by saying that he wants them to be fellow boasters. You see that at the end of verse 14. His desire in writing this part of the the letter is so that they will come to boast of him because just as he boasts of them. He wants them to boast of him as as their father in Christ, as a real apostle. But they're not going to boast in him if they think that he is a liar, if they think he's a fraud, if they think that he doesn't really love them. And so he's, again, taking this part of the letter to defend the fact that he did not come and visit them like he said he had planned to do. So he desires to restore this relationship, boasting in them and them boasting in him. So what does he have to do? He has to defend his integrity. And that's what he starts doing. In verse 12, he says, my boast is this. Uh, The irony there is, of course, that the other apostles, the false apostles are boasting about themselves, boasting about their outward appearance, 
But Paul's going to boast about his godliness, his sincerity. So here's my boast. It's the testimony of my conscience that I behaved with simplicity and sincerity. So he says, my conscience testifies to me that I am uh, living in sincerity, that I am above board in everything that I've done towards you. Now, we have the conscience, and a conscience can be wrong. You might have met some people who think that what they're doing is right, and there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. Does that make it right? No. The law of God determines what's right and wrong. So our conscience can be wrong about things. But what our conscience can do is tell us if we're living according to what we believe or not. Uh, Hebrews 5 verse 14 says we need to have the powers of discernment trained to distinguish good and evil. So you need to train your conscience that what you think is good actually lines up with what God says is good and the same with evil. But what Paul's saying here is that what he believes is right, which would be sincerity, honesty, telling the truth. His conscience tells him that he is actually living that out. So you know that there are some things that are right and wrong. And you know when your conscience can tell you, you're doing something that you know is wrong. Why are you doing this? Why did you do that? Well, Paul is saying, I can look at my life and my conscience testifies to me I live in sincerity. So he says, Two things. I behave with simplicity and sincerity. Simplicity means to be one thing, to be simple. The opposite of being simple is being complex. And so when it comes to your character, it means that you don't say one thing and do another. You don't act one way here and act another way there. You're just one person. Paul is saying, I'm a simple man. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. I live what I talk about. I practice what I preach. That's what it means to be simple. He also says he is sincere. This idea of being sincere means that you can hold something up to the light and test it by the light and it will reveal what is actually true. You've probably been to a jewelry store. And you know in those jewelry stores they have those really bright lights on those display cases of the jewelry. Well, that's because you can uh, look at a diamond and in a dark room or a, a dim, uh, dim light in a room, you aren't able to see all the carbon, the little spots, those rocks that are inside those diamonds, which is what partly determines the value of the diamond. But when you shine those bright lights on it, you can fully see what is really inside those diamonds. Those pieces, those tiny bits of carbon, they show up when they're held up to the light. Paul is saying, you can take my life. You can hold me up to the light. You can examine me, public and private, And you will find that every part of me passes 
the test. I am not trying to hide anything. He goes on to say that he is simple and sincere, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. He's boasting in the grace that God has given him to live this kind of sincere life. And his sincerity is not earthly. That word earthly is literally the word fleshly. So it's a kind of self-seeking or a pleasure-seeking. It's a personal, selfish desire. There are people who can seek to live a godly life and seek to be sincere and simple, but it's out of a fleshly desire. It's out of a personal pride. Uh, The Corinthians are dealing with false apostles who are boasting about themselves, who are drawing attention to themselves. They are using the Corinthians for their own gain. Paul's saying, I'm not using you for my gain. I've heard stories of uh, Christian musicians, quote-unquote Christian musicians, who um, they said that they, they go into the Christian music industry because it's easier to get in, to make it big, to get in the market, because it's a, it's a smaller group that you're competing with. And so they come out later and they say, yeah, I'm not really a Christian, but I was faking it the whole time. I was writing these Christian songs and, and putting on the persona, but it was all for earthly wisdom. It was all personal gain, self-seeking. Paul saying, I'm not doing this for my own advantage. So are we seeking godliness by the grace of God or by earthly wisdom? Are you trying to live a sincere and godly life because you want to put on an image? You want to fall in line with everybody else in the church and you don't want to be the odd person out? Is it because you're just trying to please your parents? You're trying to live up to a certain lifestyle or desire that people expect of you? Is that why you are seeking godliness? Or desire for the grace of God to be at work in your life and to be at work through you? Well, Paul goes on to keep defending himself in verse 13. He says, We're not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us. Now, verse 13, for, for a while, it is a little bit confusing. You just look at it, what is he saying here? What does he mean? I'm writing to you what you're reading. Okay, Paul, wh- why are you saying that? What he means there is that I'm being plain in what I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you what you can understand. That word acknowledge in my translation is also the idea of understanding. I want you to be able to read what I'm writing and understand. In other words, I'm not trying to hide things. 
with my wording. I'm not trying to wordsmith things so that I can easily get out of what I say. I'm just telling you exactly what I think and what I mean to say. And we have a term for this. People say that that person talks like a politician. Or when someone answers a question, they say, that was a politician's answer. That was a political answer. As we know that there are people who answer questions by not answering the question. And politicians are famous for that. They answer the question, but they don't really say anything. Or they make something so vague so that later on you can say, hey, but you promised this. And they're like, well, actually, that's not really what I said. It's a politician's answer. And Paul's saying, I'm not writing to you a politician's letter. I'm writing you exactly what I mean to say. I'm writing you with integrity because I want to live a life of integrity. So again, are you living a life of simplicity and godly sincerity? If we shone the light on your life, would it reveal anything that would be surprising or that we wouldn't like? Is who you are in private the same person that you present yourself to be? You know, in these stories with many famous people that they uh, sometimes get their emails leaked or text messages that they sent to someone come out in public or they're talking in a private conversation and that person secretly has a microphone and they're recording what that person is saying. People get caught on video doing things. And it comes out that they secretly in private they said something inappropriate vulgar scandalous well the real problem is that those people have a private life and they're presenting themselves in public as uh, being these upstanding fine people but really what they really think comes out when those emails are leaked or those text messages or those recordings now, you know, some, some, somebody just like recording everything you say, you don't want, you don't want all your private information uh, being posted all over the internet. I understand that. But if we record you privately talking to others, do you talk in vulgar speech, talk about inappropriate things? If we were to check your texts or your emails, are they full of immorality, gossip? Lies is who you are in private, reflecting who you are in public. Is the way that you behave at home the same as how you behave outside of the house? Is the way you talk to people online when you post things on the internet, the way you treat people face to face? Do you have secret sins that you are hiding from others. Well, to live a life of simplicity and godly sincerity means that we live life as if we are in the presence of God. That's really the answer to this. God sees everything. God's light of his holiness shines on all of our life. So what's the point in hiding? 
What's the point in pretending? God knows everything. And so if you have secret sin, you're called to confess your sin to God and to repent of your sin. Repent. If you are living a double life, make your private life match up to the person that you present to others. You know, some people, they boast and uh, I say whatever I think or uh, what you see is what you get as an excuse of like, yeah, I'm just as sinful publicly as I am privately. That's not the point. The point is you want to present yourself well to others, so be the same person privately. That's what it means to live a life of sincerity. This is especially important for those who are called to preach the gospel. We're going to see Paul saying that the testimony of the gospel depends upon this. And so the people who are called to lead the church and preach need to live lives of godly sincerity. Paul in chapter 5 verse 12, we're going to get there. He says, you need to learn how to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Don't look at a preacher's outward appearance. Don't be wowed by their speaking abilities. Don't be wowed by the crowd that they draw, whatever podcasts they have or books that they've written, the conferences that they're invited to, anything on outward appearance. That's not what really matters You need to know what is inside the heart of that man. That's what you need to find out. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, says, Ministers must preach Christ as well in their life as in their doctrine. They must not be hot in the pulpit and cold and careless in their lives. The lives of ministers oftentimes convince more strongly than their words. Their tongues may persuade, but their lives command. So we need ministers of the gospel who can boast about their simplicity and godly sincerity. Well, we see Paul defending his integrity in his life. And now in the second part, he defends his integrity in his speech. In verses 15 to 22. Before we read that, I wonder if you've ever been misunderstood and you've been in a conflict with someone and you've had difficulties in your relationship and and when you're misunderstood, there's no way you can really win. Anything that you respond with just digs you into a deeper and deeper hole. So let's say two women are fighting and there's a party And one woman says, you know, I just, I'm not going to go to the party. Because if I go, then everybody's just going to talk about how we're fighting and we have this conflict. And it's all going to be about me and everybody's going to be watching us all the time. So I'm just not going to go. And so the person says, don't go. Well, what's going to happen? Oh, she didn't come to the party because she's mad at me. And so everybody at the party is talking about how this person didn't go, right? So... How do you win? You can't win. You go, people talk. You don't go, people talk. Because there's this strain, there's this conflict, there's this misunderstanding among each other. Well, 
like I alluded to at the beginning, this is something like what Paul is going through. Paul made plans to visit Corinth, and the Corinthians are mad that Paul didn't show up. He didn't keep the plans like he said he was planning to do. And that just leads to misunderstandings and more and more hurt on both sides. So we read about this. Let's read in verses 15 to 18. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Verse 15, because I was sure of this, referring to verse 12, my integrity, my sincerity. I'm, I'm writing this sure that I was dealing honestly. I'm telling you now that I wanted to come to you first so that you can have a second experience of grace. That's probably referring to the offering. She talks about in chapter 8 as an act of grace. So he wants them to give an offering. So he wants to see them. And here's plan A. Verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia. And then come back from Macedonia. So visit you once, do a, do a U-turn, and then come back to you again, and then go to Jerusalem. Now, if you flip a few pages back, he also mentions this plan in 1 Corinthians 16. And uh, look what he says in verses 5 to 7. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on our, my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. So those are the words, right? That's the commitment he made. I want to spend the winter with you. And I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. But the Lord did not permit. That's not what happened. So here's what happened. First Corinthians got sent off. The Corinthians got that letter, and the church started blowing up. Whoa, who's Paul sending all this harsh stuff, correcting all our, our troubles and all our sin? There's all this fighting, they, all these people getting mad. So Paul hears about this, and he makes an emergency visit. We're going to look at this in a couple weeks. He makes this emergency visit. It wasn't the spending the winter, Right? That's what he said he wanted to do. He makes a quick, short visit to say, like, come on, guys, what's going on here? I need to see what's happening. And then he gets there and it blows up even more. He gets there. There's more fighting. Apparently, a group of people publicly in front of the church bashes Paul, slanders, defames Paul, tears him down. 
And nobody defends Paul. Nobody stands up. How do you think Paul felt about that? So Paul is hurt. And so Paul goes back with, as we would say, his tail between his legs. Dejected, his head bowed. Bunch of Corinthians are mad at him. And Paul is really hurt. And so then he says, you know what? It's probably better to not go to the party. It's probably better to not spend the winter there. The Lord doesn't permit. The Lord doesn't want me to do that anymore. If I go to spend the winter there, it's just going to cause more fights. And so for your good, Corinthians, because I love you, I don't want to get there and just keep fighting and fighting. So I'm not going to spend the winter in Corinth. So Paul changed his plans. He said, if the Lord permits, I will go. Things happened. And so he ended up not going. But you think they're going to take that well? There's misunderstanding. And so if we look here at verse 17, 2 Corinthians 1, Paul seems to be answering the accusations. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? So people are saying, Paul, you're vacillating. We can't count on you. We can't rely upon you. You're not reliable. You say one thing and you do another. Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Paul, you make your plans according to the flesh. You're selfish in your plans. You're only not coming because you're only thinking about yourself. Was I ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul, you say one thing, but you really meant another. You said you wanted to visit us for the winter, but you didn't mean that. You were lying. So he's being accused of being wishy-washy, being insincere. He's being accused of being selfish, and he's being accused of lying. Now, the yes, yes, that's, a, that's an emphasis. That's like saying absolutely yes. Or no, no would be like, no, no way. So they're saying, Paul, you say absolutely, but you really mean no way. Paul's defending himself. Would I really say that? You think that that's the kind of man that I am? No. Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been Yes and no. I had no intention of lying. I had no intention of misleading you. I have no intention of being selfish, but it was all for your good, Corinthians, that things happened this way. I was not lying. My word is not yes and no. So this brings us to consider for ourselves. Our own speech, are we, do we have integrity when we speak? Do we speak the truth? Do we say exactly what we mean? Do we say one thing, but we really mean another? Sometimes it seems like people think that uh, it's a way of being polite to say that you're going to be somewhere or do something, but you really don't want to be there. People say this to me all the time. Yeah, I'll come to your church one day. And I I know that they're they're never going to come because they never do come. But they just say it, right? Because they, they don't want to be rude. Well, it's, it's actually dishonest. Just tell me. If you don't want to come, just tell me. Is that how you talk? 
When you make commitments, do you intend to keep your commitments? Don't say you're going to go to the Bible study if you don't really want to go to the Bible study. Or if you find a hundred reasons throughout the week, every week, that you can't do the Bible study. Look, if you just can't do it, just say, no, I can't do it. Don't commit if you can't keep the commitment. Don't say you'll be somewhere if you aren't actually going to be there. We sang Psalm 15, which talks about a righteous man swearing to his own hurt. If you say you're going to do something, do it to your own hurt. As much as it depends on you. Don't make a bunch of excuses. And especially don't say, absolutely, I'll be there. For sure, I'll be there. But you know you're not going to be there. Parents, this applies to us as parents with our children. Uh, one way to provoke our children to anger is to say things we don't mean. You threaten a punishment that you know you're really not going to enforce. Uh, you say, no, no ice cream when you get to grandma's house. Well, you, you know grandma's going to give them the ice cream. So don't even say that. If you say no ice cream at grandma's house, you better not let them have ice cream. Don't promise rewards that you don't intend to keep. If you keep your room clean for a month, you'll get a dog. You're never going to, you're not going to get them a dog. So don't make the promise. Swear to your own hurt. If you promise a dog, you got to get them the dog. So be honest. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. Otherwise, we're just manipulating our children. We're getting them to obey with a promise that we never intend to keep. Now, with all of that said, we all know that things happen. If the Lord permits. Uh, if you get in a car wreck, if you have to go to the ER, and you promise your kids ice cream, look, we can't go to, the, we can't go to ice cream right now because we got to go to the hospital. Like that's, that's a different story. But intend to keep your word. Above all, we should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that, as James tells us to do. Now, if the Lord wills is not uh, my get out of jail free card. No, yeah, I'll show up if the Lord wills, you know, and I don't really intend to go. No. If the Lord wills means, yes, I really want to go, I'm planning to go, but I don't know what's going to happen in the future. So we should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. And mean what we say when we say yes or no. Now Paul finishes by telling us why all of this is important in verses 19 to 22. He brings in the gospel and the credibility of the gospel. Verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Paul's saying, we preached about Christ. Were we lying? Were we insincere? Did we say, yes, God will save you, but God's not going to save you? No. God says yes, and when we preach the word of God, we really mean yes. God will save you. Verse 24, all the promises of God find their yes in him. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God keeps his promises. And so we should keep our promises. God keeps his promises throughout the history of redemption in the Bible. Uh, Lord willing, if the Lord permits, uh, hopefully we will focus more on verse 20 next week and, and think about these promises, these covenants in the Old Testament that find their yes in Jesus Christ. But Paul is saying here that God has answered his promises, his covenants, by providing the Savior that he promised. It's Jesus. Jesus is the Savior by his death and his resurrection so that through Christ we can utter amen to God for his glory. You can become a worshiper of God only through Jesus. Jesus made the way for you, a sinner, to not be under his judgment, but instead to be a worshiper. And so he calls each of us, you and me, come to God, worship God, say amen to God as you pray, because you're coming through a Savior, Jesus. God kept his promises in history through Jesus, and then God keeps his promises personally through Jesus for us. In verses 21 and 22, he says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Four things that God does for the person that he saves that Paul mentions. He says he establishes you He doesn't let you blow off into the wind. He keeps you in his hand. God establishes you. He anoints you. He gives you his spirit to give you new birth so that you can be saved. That's what anointing is. He seals you. A seal is referring to how in these days a person in government or a king, he would have his own seal, a logo. And he would melt wax, and on the melted wax, he would put his ring with the seal that would make that seal on the document so that people would know this document belongs to the king. This is official. And so what Paul is saying here is that the seal God puts on you means that he is marking you off as you officially belong to God. He's not going to let you go, but you belong to him. And then he says, the spirit is your guarantee. The word for that there is the word down payment. The spirit is our down payment on our salvation. And so when you put a down payment, you are making a commitment that you're going to pay off the rest of the loan. The Spirit in our hearts is God's guarantee, God's commitment to you that He will not let you go. He will bring His salvation to completion. So you see these four things that God does. They all have to do with God keeping His promise. God starts something. He starts His salvation. He's going to finish it. Because he's established you, anointed you, sealed you, 
and put a down payment inside of you. God keeps all his promises throughout the Bible, and all these covenants find their yes in Christ, and God keeps all his promises to you to save you. That is the gospel. And so Paul's saying, as someone who proclaims the yes of God, you can believe me when I say yes. And I say yes, I don't mean no. Because I'm a man of integrity. I'm a man of sound speech that cannot be condemned. And so this passage is an evaluation for you and me. Remember these questions. Are you the same in private as you are in public? If we put your life to the light and test it out, would you pass the test? Are you men and women of godly simplicity and sincerity? May the Lord help us to be faithful ambassadors as we represent him. That our yes be yes and our no be no as we proclaim the message of God's yes in Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you that you are the God of holiness, righteousness, and truth. Thank you that we do not need to doubt you and we cannot doubt your word. Because we know that all that you speak to us is true. Thank you for fulfilling all your promises in Jesus Christ. And by sending your only son into the world that we might be saved. And we thank you for your personal promises to us and all that you have done through us by your Holy Spirit and you will keep us to the end. So by your grace, may your spirit work also in us as we grow in holiness. Help us to become more like Christ and letting our yes be yes and our no be no. We pray, Lord, for our lives to be lived before your presence, always willing to be searched under the light of your holiness. And we know that nothing can be hidden from your sight. Give us your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.